0: Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm your host. We are exploring the intersection between psychedelics and spirituality and healing. We're based out of Vancouver, Canada here, and today we have a really cool guest uh, on our show today. Dr. Kuman Ferzin is a palliative care and family uh, medicine physician at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal, He has worked all across North America, indigenous communities. He's trained lots of people in psychedelic therapeutic modalities, including MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. He's a trainer and member of the training committee for Theracil, a nonprofit in Canada that's advocating for legal access to psilocybin for psychotherapy in Canada. He's also uh, working in Montreal and and doing a multi-site open label uh, study of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And he's also the, uh, helped bring the first legal treatment of uh, physician supervised home-based psilocybin-assisted therapy in Montreal, Canada. He lectures at McGill, and I could go on and on. But I, uh, I got a chance to meet uh, Dr. Human in Ottawa a couple of weeks back, and I really fell in love with him. So he's on our show today uh, talking about his passion to help people heal and get access to these medicines that are so needed in our world right now. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Human. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Peg. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing really well. Um, A quick uh, correction. Thanks for the beautiful intro Um, that the MDMA study, I was part of the team contributing for the MAPS study in Montreal. It wasn't actually my study, but Mm. I was fortunate to be part of that team. And uh, the Montreal site uh, is now wrapping up. um, As you may have heard, the phase three uh, trial for MDMA uh, for PTSD is wrapping up, which is really exciting news for, for this year.
0: Well, thanks for that that clarification, and I'm sure we'll get into lots of uh, different avenues of of how you're involved in in so many ways. And I think that's what makes you such an interesting character is that you've got your fingers in a lot of the pies, and uh, and that's really exciting. So why don't we just start by this uh, because this is a kind of a, a fun way for me to kind of get into uh, this these topics is how did you first kind of encounter psychedelics in your life and uh, what changes did they make in you personally? And then we'll get into kind of your role uh, as a physician and what kind of what we're doing uh, academically, but yeah, how did you first encounter psychedelics personally?
1: It's a good question. I mean, for me, psychedelics falls in the more broad realm of altered states of consciousness. And so I had familiarity with altered states of consciousness uh, just through common knowledge, um, you know, like a lot of uh, practices, including let's say Sufism, involve altered states of consciousness. And so um, there is always an attraction to altered states of consciousness, mysticism, and, um, you know, the benefits of, of such practices. And uh, I think I learned about psychedelics through popular culture, you know, movies, uh, music, and um Personally, um, you know, as I went to college, I gained a lot of information uh, pertaining to the more academic and medical side of psychedelics. Uh, While I was at UC Berkeley, particularly, this is back in the early 2000s, I remember um, reading an article that was using functional MRI imaging of uh, Buddhist monks and comparing it to those of uh, LSD users. And there were striking similarities. And, um, you know, Berkeley has a very vibrant psychedelic culture and a lot of relevant history has taken place there. And so I ended up taking a class by uh, David Presti, Mm. um, who uh, is a professor in uh, neurobiology and neuroscience there and um, learned about drugs in the brain and how, you know, they affect the neurotransmitters. And uh, from then I started learning about some of the work that was being done and, and uh, became familiar with the history of psychedelics, especially, you know, in the 60s and 70s and uh, the backlash uh, that led to the prohibition. And so from from then on, I had a really deep interest in it. And, you know, I was I was hopeful that one day the medical community would embrace um reintroduction of this therapy and uh, to my surprise you know it happened earlier than I thought and so I was fortunate enough to to plug back into this work uh, a couple of years ago as as a professional and uh, happy to be part of this movement now.
0: Well that's really cool so you have uh, well I just want to to touch on something you dropped and you just kind of dropped it and kind of kept on going. But I was like, Whoa, that's interesting. You reference Sufi mysticism uh, as kind of an, another stream for us to understand. And I think what you're, what you're referencing is this idea that when we think about psychedelics, we think about psychedelics as like um, almost like a Western pill, like here, you get this thing, right? And this is the, it gives you an altered state experience, but I think it's better to be understood as another modality in a series of modalities could be breath work, cannabis, uh, drumming, uh, first nations communities use like sweat lodges. Uh, and so there's, Indigenous communities around the world have always used what they call trance-based learning as a, as a kind of a normal way of engaging uh, with healing, uh, vision quests, you know, rites of passage. So I love that your reference to like Sufi mysticism is not kind of some weird kind of concept way out there uh, as like, how does Sufi mystics connect with psychedelic uh, psychotherapy? And, and I, I think what you're saying is, hold on a minute, buddy, those strings are actually attached. There's a lot of ways into altered state work. and it, and, and, and you know, psilocybin, for instance, is not the only way in. And so I love that you just broaden that uh, that definition up to uh, to anything that can maybe open us up to accessing our deep inner wisdom, uh, and getting us out of the kind of the default mode network of our brain that so many of us are locked in. Do you want to kind of riff on that a little bit about your reference to to kind of spirituality?
1: Yeah, I think that's really relevant. And um, I, I agree with everything you said. And, you know, that is one way that I present this is that, you know, we're medicalizing this process that has been practiced by humans for hundreds to thousands of years. And, um, you know, when I was an undergrad, I was really into anthropology, especially focusing on indigenous practices and altered states. And I was surprised to learn that, for example, in Africa, a lot of the shamans and shamanic ceremonies that include very intense altered states involve no drugs. There are no chemicals involved. These are rituals, and you know the reality is that our our, our minds are extremely powerful um, tools, and they can experience all kinds of states uh, if the right environment exists. And so, you know, what we're doing here is using a chemical compound that is a catalyst to a process that is innate to the human uh, consciousness, to the human experience. And, you know, some of the science now is getting to a place uh, that it's showing that, you know, this response, this psychedelic state is is almost like an evolutionary mechanism that, you know, gets activated in various circumstances, including trauma. So this fluidity, this escape from the default um, could be an adaptive mechanism uh, even, you know, when we're dealing with significant adversity, let's say. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we were having this discussion a few days ago about like the importance of set and setting, you know, in the psychedelic process. And I think it's important in the medical process as a whole, you know, the set and setting is a concept that should be applied to all facets of medical practice, even uh, cardiology or anything, you know, because we're humans having experience and everything that happens that influences this experience matters. And, Mm. you know, with psychedelics, we're just amplifying this significantly. Um, But innately there's, there's a process that is universal here that is not dependent on these molecules.
0: That's a fascinating statement to make, right because I think in as we educate people around these substances in the Renaissance of psychedelics, which is kind of we're in that time right now, you know we're're we're, we're 50 60 years out from the war on drugs and we realized that that was just, You know, that was a political move to probably kind of silence kind of people that were questioning uh, whether it was the war or consumerism in general or whatever. Um, But now we have a new opportunity to kind of understand these substances in a different context. And I think your language of saying this is an innate reality for human beings, that to to be in an altered state is actually that's it's deeply human like uh I, I was reading uh you know I was reading one of uh there was this this researcher named um, Darsha Narva from Notre Dame University of Notre Dame and she wrote a book uh it's she's all around attachment early attachment looking at uh, indigenous communities and attachment and uh, she argued that uh, indigenous communities around the planet um, teach children that, you know, up until the age of six, you know, make believe, uh, you know, have make believe friends and having these altered state kind of realities. That's normal for children. We, we that's normal to me in make believe and to almost talk to yourself and have almost be doing natural parts work. And I remember reading her and talking with her. She was saying altered state is an innate reality for human beings. It's only our modern world that has bracketed out and said we don't even understand it, we don't even want it. We think it's almost like bad, and we can only deal with kind of uh, you know uh, cognitive processes. And so I, I I love your language about the innate uh, right and almost like the almost like it's our birthright as human beings to understand and engage and explore and use substances that can enhance altered state experiences for our own healing connection and growth. And I, 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 think that's a really beautiful way to frame that. And it's a very inviting, uh, um, kind of way to, way to do it, to say, this is an innate, and you need to explore it and understand it. And the medical community really needs to understand how important set and setting is. I guess my next question then is on that is, you know, as a physician moving and, and working in this field, um, there seems to be this tension now, right? Between two streams. One is this kind of medicalization that's coming in saying the only way that we can do psychedelics is if you have like a physician and some kind of therapist, and you're going to do it in a clinic, then it's okay, right? Uh, And so as I understand, there's importance to have safety mechanisms around this. You're also advocating for, you're a physician, advocating for a new way to understand set and setting and maybe move it out of the clinical model. So, you know, talk to me about that as a physician, how do you hold the tension between uh, you know, a Western understanding of science and a deeply indigenous way of being almost this two eyed seeing approach, which I think is really needed. Comment on that for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, I think balance is key and, um, and it also really depends who we're talking about and what sort of process. So, you know, my statement on set and setting really goes beyond psychedelic therapy. I'm saying that, you know, there is you know, how we interact as a society together matters. What uh, feelings and emotions exist in a, in a room, in a, in a medical visit that maybe is entirely uh, physiological you know, let's say it's like orthopedic surgery, you know, that interaction uh, matters. And so, you know, one of the issues that we have in our system is this overemphasis on, on the rationalization of everything and the reductionism. And so that, you know, has taken away the importance of just interactions of, of you know, our presence in the room with someone, you know, and so, you know, that is, is a broad statement that I think applies you know, when it comes to psychedelic therapy, I think it really depends who we're treating, and you know, the reality is that certain members of our population um, are facing extreme difficulty with their mental health, and you know, there are arguments to be made in terms of transdiagnostic thinking and how how we approach these things. But if we're dealing with an individual who has significant needs in terms of their mental health care, then that individual um, probably will do better in, in a structured system with adequate resources in place. You know, unfortunately, we don't have adequate resources in place for mental health care. And so, you know, there, there is a problem because, you know, normal health, mental health care has like significant flaws, let alone adding, you know there's new elements and the amplification of all the you know consequences of these sorts of extreme experiences. Um so I think overmedicalization is wrong, but also underappreciation of the value of a medical system and especially if it's properly done in a multidisciplinary way, you know, in a biopsychosocial, uh, maybe spiritual approach to care, which can happen in mental health. And you know, with uh, certain, uh, certain psychedelic therapists were seeing this even in the mainstream. So I think there is a value in the medical system. But you know, if, if someone is doing this more for personal growth, and spiritual expri- exploration, then that's a different story. And, you know, over medicalizing that is, is definitely, um, you know, flawed. Mm-hmm. But for, for someone that is really suffering that let's say they're on multiple medications, for example, And, Mm -hmm. you know, even medications are underappreciated these days, you know, not all medications are bad. And so if someone's on multiple medications, then you need to have adequately trained professionals involved in the care Mm -hmm. to to manage, you know, Mm -hmm. the the complex uh, care. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think about um, I think about. how this is actually going to happen like how do we actually do that right how does how does psychedelics come into community right because the the question it can't just be oh we have enough physicians and enough therapists to do this work we just don't like if if tomorrow you know psilocybin was made legal uh in canada and it was like okay go do whatever you want kind of thing we just don't have enough You know, people to be able to handle uh, in in the current system to be able to handle the demand that that would happen. Right. Because this is this is promising. This is it's not a it's not a silver bullet. It's not you know, it's not magic. Um, But there is an element that this is going to be a tool. That's going to be really, really helpful uh, in mental health, and uh, I think it also has lots of other capabilities and, and uh, can do some really beautiful other work as well than just healing mental health challenges. But I think it's a powerful tool, and how it comes into community is going to be a really interesting, uh, you know, question. One of the things I love about what you're pushing is you were one of the first, I think, I think the first in Canada to uh, get a health care to actually pay for a psilocybin therapy through the Quebec uh, healthcare. Can you talk to me about that, that story? It's a pretty cool, uh, you know, a first for, for, for Canada. Uh, tell me about what happened there and how did that happen?
1: Thanks. Yeah. Just to, just to finish up on the previous thread, I just want to add that, you know, when it comes to these sorts of experiences, we have to realize that, you know, it's one of those things where you really have to experience it to understand it and so one of the issues is that it's very hard to verbalize this to the naysayers Mm -hmm. and you know so creating experiences for people for example uh, experiential learning um you know which is the way that we advocate for is really key and so i think a lot of the people that haven't experienced this will naturally question it but hopefully you will be able to get access more and more to experiential learning and this way people can experience this for themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, getting back to the Quebec story. I mean, it's yeah. been really interesting, you know, it's been really interesting because we've been advocating for access to these kinds of treatments for a while. And I'm licensed in Ontario as well. And, you know, through the leadership of uh, Mark Cornfield, who is a psychiatrist and I had done some ketamine training with him. Uh, he was a mentor. And so this is like years ago, we were writing letters publicly to advocate for access to ketamine in the community, because ketamine is another one of, you know, medications that was traditionally under the domain of anesthesia. And and there are ongoing challenges with having ketamine available in the community outside of a medical setting. And so uh, this sort of advocacy work has existed. And, um, you know, I just had a feeling that, Quebec may be the kind of place that would uh, allow us to do this in the public system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Quebec in certain ways has, has differences with other places, but for certain kinds of things, it just takes the leap, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, in this case, thanks to the support of uh, my supervisor, John at the Jewish general, um, um, who supported doing this work within the palliative care context, and thanks to the advocacy work of uh, Jean-Francois Stefan, who's my colleague. Um, And he basically, you know, led the advocacy campaign directly uh, with the body of general practitioners uh, and and RAMQ, which is, um, you know, the agency that pays us ultimately. And Mm -hmm. we submitted evidence and we submitted our clinical notes. And um, essentially what happened was, you know, there is already a billing code in Quebec for doctors to be able to bill for a clinical intervention. It's just, it's like okay. a broad. What does that mean? Term. Again,
0: that's an interesting phrase. And yeah. if you like, that's big enough for me, I'm going to park psychedelics in that. Let's talk yeah, about it. Yeah,
1: well, the thing is, it's a broad sort of uh, term and it, it covers both physical procedures, let's say, uh, but also mental health care. And so for mental health care, the way the current billing codes uh, are, you already have capability to bill for a mental health clinical intervention by a doctor for as many hours as needed. This already existed. Okay. And so what we did is uh, we asked that they allow two doctors mm-hmm. at the same time for the same patient to do this clinical intervention with this novel therapy that could take a long time. And uh, they said, it's okay. Just go ahead. Cause we were going to try to create a new code, but they said, no, just go ahead and use the same code. And you know, if, If there is enough evidence that health Canada is giving you permission to do this, then we will cover this clinical intervention and we did it and we got paid and you know it's been monumental.
0: Now, now, uh, the, the patient was named Robert Foxman, and uh, it, it's, it, this is a public, uh, you know, he's been in the news about this. Uh, can you tell me a little about uh, his story? Obviously, not what happened to him, you know, that's private, but just as much as you, I mean, he, he was, what was he presenting? What was, how was this treatment helpful?
1: Yeah, I mean, Robert's been uh, really uh, open about this. And so I can speak a bit and he, he's been really kind um, by allowing us to speak about him and even by uh, allowing me to show his videos to, to teach others how to do the therapy. Um, but, you know, long story short, Robert is, is an individual with, you know, decades of struggle with uh, de- depression, anxiety, and he was followed um, by uh, Paul Groff who is Stangroff's brother he's an amazing uh human and 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 a very skilled psychiatrist in Ottawa and so essentially you know um his care was handed over to my colleague Simon Amar here in Montreal who's actually uh, the maps um, co-principal investigator and um you know Simon ended up moving to Australia so the care got handed down to Jean-Francois and then I, I had been involved in the care for a while and we were essentially waiting you know uh, robert is is a case where he had to wait and suffer for months and months because we weaned him off uh, uh, the medications that he was on for decades in order to to do this uh therapy with psilocybin and you know, I think it seems more and more we're moving to the direction of not needing to wean people off everything, but you know we're being conservative and evidence based. So he essentially ended up suffering significantly, and mm. um, we were able to treat him eventually, uh, as as uh, you saw. And so mm. he had tremendous benefit. And 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 the reality is that someone with uh, this much suffering. Um, all his problems are not going to vanish overnight with one session. And this is a very important message to give to people. People are expecting a miracle cure. And even though miracles do happen, they are not the norm. And so, um, you know, it's an ongoing process. You know, Jean-Francois follows uh, Robert closely as a psychotherapist. And so it's ongoing work. And, And also, you know, what we spoke about earlier, it's not just about, uh, the the drug. It's about lifestyle changes, and it's about getting involved in other sorts of activities. Let's say whether it's breath work or community activity, or meditation, or, or other processes.
0: Hmm. Well That's that. I mean, it's just such a beautiful story, and I, I just love your pioneering work there. And I think again, it's such a significant uh, a, a moment because it here is a you know a public healthcare system. Paying for psychedelic treatment for a patient using doctors, right? And so this is to me one of the most unique cases I, I think in, in the world that it's it's uh, this is outside of clinical trial. You know it, this is an underground therapy. This is paid for by the by the Quebec Health Authority, uh, and so it it really is showing and setting a precedent. And I think there's an opportunity for other Canadian provinces to really step up and really follow Quebec's lead here and saying we this cannot be. This cannot be, I'm going to make this so clear, this cannot be only accessible by the wealthy. And I think for too long uh we've had these private clinics or or you know, you're gonna do Costa Rica, I'm gonna do ayahuasca tourism, that kind of stuff. And you know, I'm gonna pay my 10 grand and go down there and do this thing. This is not what Canada needs. We need an accessible access that is paid for and funded by our Canadian healthcare system to help Canadians. And uh, and I know that you have a heart for indigenous communities. You've worked in them, you've worked in the Arctic uh, all over. Uh maybe that's a nice opportunity for you to really. Talk a little bit about some of your values here uh, um, about why accessibility to these medicines are such a driving force for you.
1: I mean, you just have to look at the suffering. There's so much suffering that's happening um, in in most societies and uh, with the indigenous societies. I mean, it's, you know, terrible suffering. And uh, working up there has been really eye-opening but painful and um, you know the reality is that a lot of people um, are also doing this I mean first of all so many people want this right now you know the population wants this the polls show that and you know the amount of demand we're getting shows that and so to turn our backs on them and say you know either go abroad to the kind of places you mentioned or to go to the underground um, you know for people that have serious illness let's say is just is not a good thing and you know we have the demand and we need to establish systems we need to pass adequate legislation and we need to integrate this um, into our uh, university sort of infrastructure to do the right sort of studies and um, and to provide this access in a safe and effective way and you know safety is also really important and you know i'm not uh, discrediting the underground as a whole, you know, I think there are good and bad players in the medical system and in in the underground, but, you know, to, to pretend this isn't happening and, you know, to just kind of ignore this demand, I don't think is the right thing to do. And so, you know, we're trying to shine light, trying to, um, expand, uh, access, uh, expand knowledge, And, uh, you know, our experience so far has been extremely positive. And, um, you know, in a way, you know, Canada at a a federal level is a world leader in in, in these sorts of things. And, you know, Canada has led in terms of access to medical assistance and dying. And, you know, that has become a really key part of this discussion is that, you know, if you have the right uh, to get the medical system pay uh, for, you know, your death, the way you want it and when you want it, uh, which, you know, I think is a human right. And, you know, to the, the, the degree in which it's accessible can be debated, but I've seen the positives myself, you know, for individuals that want to end their life in a particular sentence setting and they're able to do it. And it's great. And so in that sort of model, we need to respect their, you know, right to try this experience. I mean, this is an experience um, you know that people want to have and they should have a right to have it and you know we have decades of literature on it and we have hundreds to thousands of years of practice and you know to, to respect the indigenous uh, principles and you know the, it could be potentially part of the reciprocity and uh, respect to the indigenous is to Uh, open access to this sort of uh, work and to include the indigenous Mm -hmm. Um, and you know i think the principles that indigenous wisdom sort of have as a whole are probably very beneficial for our society today because we're lacking a lot of that Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's a huge one i mean i think what you just said there human is is such a it's such a, a a road that we need to start exploring way more is that it, that I, I think that the healing of that we're longing for for our communities and our culture is is going to only take place when we begin to collaborate with indigenous communities that hold this body of knowledge. And it's and as, as we say, listen, um, and even in how we do it, like y- we've talked a lot about set and setting and, 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 you know, these these kinds of things. And for me, I mean, my wife and I are starting, you know, this organization called Gathering Groups and why we want to connect therapists in a safe way to do this work in groups and to, and to have settings that can, uh, in essence, replicate indigenous ways of doing altered state work, which was never in one-on-one kind of ways. It was always in connection with community. And so, you know, it, it's an ancient model of sitting around a fire and 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 healing in com- in community that's new to us. We're very individualized culture. And so most of our kind of medical models are, you know, two therapists and one patient in a clinic, kind of a very, you know, three sessions dosing, three sessions follow up, you're done, right? And and I think that's not going to, you know, I look at the research out of Imperial College, uh, with people like uh, you know um, Robin Cartwright Harris and then some of the colleagues that went on to synthesis uh, and uh, Rosalind Watts, for instance, Dr. Rosalind Watts, and she's saying even in our clinical studies, when people do these high dose sessions in 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 kind of clinical settings. If they don't have really good uh, follow up and embedding people back into communities, they, they can lose a lot of the insights that they're getting from these psychedelic experiences and they find themselves depressed eight, nine months later. So what's the answer? And what she's found is she said, we've moved all of our dosing at synthesis into community based groups, group models. And that's been very inspiring for us. Because what happens is people attach to one another in the group, not just to their therapist. And so when you attach in a group and you have a shared sense that we are tripping together, that there's a shared uh, goal that we have as a group. Not I don't just heal by myself. I heal in connection. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to really learn from these indigenous ways of healing in circles And uh, to create those partnerships and uh, and those that have these deep land based, uh, you know, uh, plant based knowledge, we need to bring that in uh, and and enhance of the how we're going to bring these these substances into our communities. So I don't know if you have any thoughts there on on kind of group, uh, you know, group models, uh, which are really emerging as one of the most promising ways for accessibility and for safety.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, community is the key. And, you know, one aspect that's that's important is that a lot of the suffering that we see is because of lacking community. Mm. You know, people are isolated in this individualistic society. Like you mentioned, they're feeling lonely and we're trying to medicate them into beginning happy. But what they want is connection. And, and this goes for addiction as well. And so uh, it, uh, creating connections is one of the best ways in which we can help people heal. Mm. Um, you know, the other aspect is that um, we're, we're seeing this, as you said, with group therapy, anecdotally, at least, for example, Thomas Hartle, uh, that speaks about this publicly is the first patient that was treated in uh, Canada, and he's super kind and uh, generous with his time always and very, very uh, wise and insightful. And he has has had the opportunity to get treatment around every six months and it started with individual therapy and he clearly states that the group therapy experience was palpably different because of that sense of community and if he had a choice he would definitely choose a group therapy.
0: Yeah I mean I, that's I would I, you know we've we've been doing this work now for about two years and I, I would say um out of probably the 200 people that we've treated uh, maybe half of them had a prior individual experience and they would all say the group experiences, uh, were, uh, not even on the same level. It's not even close. And I, and I I asked them why, like, it's a profound experience you had with your therapist. You know, why was this such a, they say it's in a different category because there's something, and I'm I'm curious about this and I don't want to put weird words into it, but there's something inherent about our kind of the problem uh, it, like if our problem in our culture is disconnection, right if you go back to people like uh, uh, what's his name lost lost connections Johann Hari's work right on depression and the rise of SSRIs and I, I anyone listening you got to go read Johanna Hari's work um, lost connections and he rightly points out that that at the basis of so much of our mental health crisis is as you said, it's people no longer feel heard. No longer are connected with their primary family of origin. They're dislocated from their parents. They're dislocated where they grew up. They no longer have spiritual communities that 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 would say are are you know important to them. They no longer have groups of people that they say would really know them and, and understand them. And so that they, they turn to therapists as you know with one hundred fifty dollars two hundred dollars an hour so they can feel heard maybe once a week right and and so people are lost. And so here we are, we're looking at ways of connecting people again, and these substances open up the possibility of connection. That's kind of what they do. They enhance our connectivity to our inner life, to others, and to the world beyond, right? To something larger, something spiritual. And I think those elements of connection are really important uh, forays for us to explore. And if if group work can enhance connection and then we put people into an altered state where that 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 connection gets like on steroids and people feel loved and seen and you know not because the therapist is seeing them but because they're seeing by their peers that's a game changer for people. So I couldn't agree more with your assessment here. As this is the way forward for this kind of this kind of medicine work, I think in our in our culture, and I'm excited to see what that's going to look like in the next five years.
1: Thanks, and I just want to add that you know this doesn't mean that there's no role for individual therapy, of and that and that group therapy is the right answer uh, for for everyone, especially with their first experience, and so. We have to realize that, you know, people, let's say someone who's been isolated for decades and, and, and suffering and maybe paranoid and all kinds of things, you can't just give them suicide and put them in a group. It, it might not go well and it might affect, uh, you know, the outcome for, for the entire group. So I think, um, you know, in, in certain cases, even people are doing individual therapy and then based on that response and, and, and readiness, introducing group therapy and so that's also important to keep in mind Mm -hmm. the other thing that i quickly wanted to say which is interesting is you know part of why we do psychedelic therapy and why we think it's beneficial is this concept of ego dissolution you know and this concept of um, sort of becoming one with everything else and everyone else and so um, you know in a group setting this makes a lot of sense you know if you're in this a sort of state where, you know, as Ramdas puts it, like uh the ego is like a set of construct, constructs that defines your separation from everything else. And so if you're experiencing oneness with everything else, then how beautiful is it to have other people in that experience? And that will, you know, help you integrate the experience. And uh, like you said, you don't have to like pay your therapist every time you want to like talk about that experience. You have a community now where you can help each other. And uh, move forward.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's uh I I totally agree. And I think that's uh um if the goal is how do we build better communities, right? So that we so that we we can include way more people, so we have you know, so yeah, I think psychedelics have a beautiful role here um in helping us build more robust, authentic communities of people that can really you know uh uh, because you know connection is the medicine right it's it's as we get connected that we begin to heal and i and i love like um some of the work well not i love not some i love all of the work by uh uh, we've got some beautiful therapists and thinkers out of vancouver here um and you know, when I when I interact with, with people that are, are looking at what is our challenge when it comes to addictions, you know, so you can say, what is addiction? Well, addiction is, you don't ask why the drugs, you ask why the pain, right? So when you begin to go, what's going on? What's the trauma that these drugs have been helpful for at helping you not, you know, n- not be able to feel the pain. They've kept you alive, right? So rather than shaming people, we realize this is coming from some pain of disconnection. So the answer has got to be connection, not just, you know, get off drugs. So I, there's something really important in this story of psychedelics uh, and uh, that it's really about community building as the way forward uh, for healing. And I think that's a very, that's a very complex model. It's different than, Hey, we've got a new pill that we can introduce, right? It's like a Viagra. Oh, a new built pill in the market. going to change everybody's life. It's like, no, this is not a new pill in the market. First of all, it's not new. It's ancient. Uh, and secondly, it's a, it's, it's disrupting the way that we heal. It's going to change our models of how we heal. And I think that's really exciting. And I think you're on the forefront of trying to bring that, that new way of uh, engaging healing uh, into our, you know, into the, the practices that are already going on, right? Our medical system. So I'm excited about that. Um Human, I want to move to some personal stuff uh, in your life. You, uh, you have a passion for music, too.
1: Yeah, music uh, is, is an instrumental part of my life, and um, I've done a lot of healing uh, through it myself.
0: And you talk about that, because I think, you know, when you say healing and music, uh, music doesn't just become a little hobby, like, oh, I play guitar or I like to DJ. You're saying, hold on a minute, there is something connected between music and healing can you make that connection because you just lob that one out to me
1: yeah i think i think it's not a new thing you know we've we've used music as a tool for healing you know for generations and um even if you study some of like the cores of shamanism you know a lot of times you know the shaman and the person who provides the music are the same and so um, You know, music has the power to take us to places that we don't normally uh, get access to. And, you know, music is a tool in this toolbox of altered states. And, you know, music has the, the potential to create altered states, to, to change neural pathways, just, just like a psychedelic would. And the combination of music and psychedelics it just amplifies that. Mm. And so... Um, you know, for me personally, I could just uh recall difficult moments in my life, and how listening to a certain piece of music, either by uh, bringing me joy or by allowing me to release emotions, has resulted in tremendous healing. And um, you know, by using music in in the therapeutic model, um you know, we're really seeing the the benefits and and the power that music has. And, you know, in a sense, uh, music can be the therapist in the room. You know, I have a colleague in Montreal, a brilliant uh, psychiatrist, Kyle Greenway and, and his team, and they're doing really interesting work uh, randomizing uh, people that get ketone-assisted therapy to getting music or no music. Mm-hmm. It's a very like novel uh, sort of study. And, you know, their experience um, has been that if there's no music, then you're working a lot harder as a therapist, you know, because the music is, is doing something. It has tremendous power. And, you know, the reality is just looking at musical events around the world, like festivals, people are going and, you know, having life changing experiences at these music events. And, you know, this just shows the, the power music has. And I've been interested, um, you know, in music and performing as, as a DJ and I make music and um curating music for psychedelic therapy now so it's it's a really nice uh place for me because uh two of my like big passions have merged you know using music as medicine uh it was a motto and now it's it's kind of uh become reality
0: wow you know i uh what a what a cool what a cool thing that you're bringing together i just love it like this uh the psychedelic, uh, DJ meets a uh, doctor, right. And, uh, you're, you're beginning to bring these two together and they're, you know, to be, you know, I, I think this, I think we all have known this kind of intuitively. Like we've been in these concerts, these settings, these group communitas, like the word communitas is a, is a word that we use. People call it like, uh, there was magic in the air. I felt like I was one. We were all singing the same song. There was, you know, 20, thousand of us you know boom boom in the same rhythm we felt connected this is i mean this is the work that we see at places like burning man at shambhala at music festivals at raves like why is it that you know for instance my kids i mean i've got you know i'm i'm pretty public about this i've got grown daughters and in their 20s and you know one of the highest spiritual experiences for them is to to be at a rave right and to he's like okay i'm going to take i'm going to take molly and dance with you know a thousand uh, of my friends and dad this is the most spiritual experience of my life right and i'm like okay we can't just discount that as a bunch of kids on drugs that's not it there's something deeply uh, innate, something deeply profound that's happening when we combine music, connection, community uh, and and you know and and then even putting you know substances into that. So it's uh this is we've known this and we just I think are bringing this into the medical community now to say, do you know that music and uh, and 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 concert and these kinds of events can actually be very, very healing. Uh, obviously when people take Molly at these kind of events, there's, there can be adverse effects because the setting is not conducive to healing and people's trauma can come up and memories can come up and you're supposed to be at a, you know, dancing the night away. And instead now you're stuck in the, the emergency tent with a physician because you've got unexplored trauma, right? So that happens. But I think what you're talking about is we've, we've known this intuitively that music is really, re- music is medicine. Music is the therapist, uh, and so I'm fascinated by that. Oh, my dog just took off. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about more the, the kind of music you play. Just dive me into that. Uh, I want to know the kind of, you know, give me give me a sample of the tunes or something. I want to know the kind of music that you create, human.
1: Thanks for sure. Yeah. Just to continue what you're saying, you know, like that's exactly right. You know, music, um, and these sorts of settings can be tremendously healing, but it could also do harm. And, you know, that is the reality. Um, you know, when things are prohibited, not talked about, you know, we don't have adequate, uh, education, we don't have access to substances of a certain uh, quality, we definitely see a lot of adverse events. And one of the things that I've been doing and in, in tandem to performing at festivals like this is uh, harm reduction. And, you know, even as medical students we go uh, here to, to raves and, you know, talk to, to participants who are having difficult experiences or like the Zendo project by maps uh, at Burning Man or other places. So um yeah, it's really important and really conveys the same message. Um, but yeah, the music that I produce is is electronic dance music. It's um, probably more closer to deep house. They call it organic house now, but it's essentially taking um, a lot of elements of folk music, world music, and um, in a sense, modernizing it with a beat. And, um, you know, it, it, it's almost meditative type music, um, but more upbeat Okay. and so you know the goal is to to be able to um hypnotically enter a state you know with, with the music uh, that doesn't necessarily require drugs but that allows you to um, go deeper in, in into you know your state of consciousness and so um, that is the kind of music that we've been focused on um I I have a group with my cousin and um you know we're Iranian and and we have a particular passion for like Persian music and there's a lot of beautiful traditional Persian music that is actually quite mystical uh, linked to, you know, the whole Sufi practice uh, thing. And, you know, like this, this act of uh, dancing, uh, you know, drunken by music, um, Without substances is a practice that's still uh, done today in Sufi circles and, you know, the whirling dervishes yeah, the and things whirling, like that.
0: Beautiful. They get into a trance as they move around in these beautiful circles, almost like water. Uh, you, to watch it, it's just mind-boggling, beautiful. And all of a sudden, they're moving in these uh, different realms. And you can tell there's there's a switch that happens as the music and the dance and uh, I've seen this in in not with Sufi mysticism. I've seen this in Ethiopia in communities that use music around fires uh, and to create altered state experiences. And so these are uh, just as profound as any mushroom experience that I've I've witnessed, and sometimes even more profound. Uh, so can you give me? Uh, can you can you do you have anything on on uh on on like can i find can i find you on yeah
1: yeah for sure yeah we're on spotify it's uh baham collective so baham means together it's b-a-h-a-m baham collective as one word it's bahamcollective.com and on various uh, platforms but baham is the name of the group and so on spotify um we have a bunch of tunes and any other major? Oh, well, I love it. Well,
0: we're so, gonna, we're gonna, we'll take a look at that. Uh, we'll right look on. at that. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's spelled B A H A M A N Bahan. Bahan Baham,
1: uh, M like, uh, oh, uh like, it ends in m Baham, yeah, Baham. It Baham. means together. And we also have a bunch of cool music videos. Quite okay. psychological well, I
0: will uh definitely look them up and uh I'd love to to feature a little bit of something on the podcast for sure because uh I I just I love that you're I just think it's brilliant that you're in involved in these kind of different uh, modalities and it really just shows uh you know how this kind of work is really touching a different part of us it's it's pulling together different kind of I don't know how to say it but like yeah it's You said your two passions are finally coming together. And I just think that's such a beautiful, uh, what a beautiful gift in your life at this time.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, I view balance as one of the key principles in well-being. And so for me, music has always uh, played a balancing role with medicine and, you know, studying so much and working so hard. Uh, having something that is really for that moment and, and, you know, absolute pleasure Mm -hmm. has, has been a good balancing force. You know, I think uh, we're, we're in a place where a lot of healthcare professionals especially are are facing burnout. Mm -hmm. And and so having uh, a sort of holistic type uh, lifestyle is important. You know, if you do too much of one thing, it's going to throw you off. And especially you know, if if it's a system where you're supposed to function as a machine, and we're not machines, we're more than that. And so it's important to bring balance. And uh, that's why I really respect the Roots to Thrive group, actually, um, you know, out there in BC, and we're uh, doing some efforts to bring bring that here. But having like a multidisciplinary uh, team of of uh, healthcare professionals let's say that can help each other heal and go through these hard times i think are pivotal really like mm-hmm. our healthcare system is facing tremendous danger because we're not addressing the well-being of of, of individuals and this this could be a great way mm-hmm. to do that yeah.
0: that's that's the that's, that's beautifully beautifully said you know uh, as, as we kind of pull this interview to a bit of a close uh, have you looked kind of a lack back in the last five years of your life uh, human and you kind of entered into the scene pretty publicly and uh, really trying to push for change and advocating for access and working in indigenous communities and you've done so many beautiful things. Um, what for you? what are some personal shifts that that have that that you know this altered state work has done for you? how have how has it kind of helped you in your life if, if, if you don't mind going there. I don't know if there's certain things that you're you you do not mind talking about um, that, yeah. and how it's helped shift for you?
1: Not at all. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, one of the key things, and you know, what's interesting is that link between meditation and psychedelics um, is a really strong one. You know, I, I really view psychedelics as a catalyst for that very process. And so, uh, one of the most profound experiences of my life happened at a vipassana meditation retreat a few years ago, and you know, Vipassana, for those who don't know, it's like a Buddhist meditation technique. And supposedly the Buddha used that technique to to reach, you know, enlightenment. And so it's 10 days of absolute uh, strict kind of meditation practice with, you know, zero distractions, including speaking and looking people in the eye. And so, you know, my personal journey is that I lost my birth mother at a very young age to cancer. So I was two and a half or so. Um, she unexpectedly passed away to cancer and I actually have no memory of her. And what happened is I grew up with this trauma. You know, if you imagine a two and a half year old losing, uh, you know, a, a mother who he's perfectly attuned to, uh, it's it's a big loss. And, you know, because I had no memory of it, I was not able to really address that trauma. And it manifested in all, all sorts of, you know, maladaptive behaviors and so what happened for me was at vipassana i was able to access that trauma that was stored deep within me <clears throat> and that's what psychedelics do you know they are a tool that can give you access to to trauma to emotions that are buried deep within the body deep within the subconscious and so you know as i do this work Um, you know, I, I allow my, my psyche and my, my body to process these emotions and by processing them rather than suppressing them, you can get through them and, you know, you feel better, you feel better physically and mentally and emotionally. So, um, you know, that's one aspect. And the other important aspect is authenticity, you know, and authenticity, uh, is really important. And, you know, I love how Gabor Mate, um, who's a mentor, talks about this, you know, the sacrifice of authenticity for attachment mm-hmm. as as young kids. You know, we favor attachment over authenticity because it's linked to our survival. And so one of the things that I see happening in society is just there's a crisis in, in authenticity. And so, you know, what psychedelics do is they... Uh, sort of give you an honest lens to yourself and others. And so, you know, people, I feel, are lying to themselves in many ways and, and, you know, not really doing what they want to do deep down and doing things because society, social media is telling them to. And so, you know, with this journey of growth, I just learned to be more and more myself- Mm-hmm. And to be authentic, And with that authenticity comes happiness and you know, success, and things uh, just just happen in a better way, it seems,
0: yeah. I mean, they we call that flow, right? I mean, it's like you're no longer trying. It's not like you're you're it's this curated image that we put out on Instagram. Like, like me please i want to fit in right i want to belong and so i have to fake fake who i need to be in order to feel acceptable and i think that's such a detriment in our culture right now and and i think what we're realizing is what like you're talking about is psychedelics offer this opportunity to to really open up and be my truest self, right? Like we talk about not your best self. Like that's, I think that's a false notion, like be your best self. I don't really regulate with that or connect with that, but I do like this idea of, I can be my most authentic self. How do I be, peg consistently who I who I want to be not trying to fit in you know so I'm acceptable just can I be me and be acceptable and I think uh, psychedelics offer opportunity for us to explore that and to be our truest self and uh, and from that then we feel a sense of I'm okay I'm good enough I'm, uh, I belong. And when we feel that, I think there's come, the traumas begin to shift, right? We begin to feel like I can be okay. Uh, and I, I really, I loved how you talked when you talked about your mother um, and her passing and, and uh, just that trauma that left in your body, right? So this is a pre-cognitive kind of memory, a somatic memory deep in your body. Uh, it's an attachment wound, right? Your mother's gone. And that is a, that's a deep wound that's been ripped. And you may not know cognitively that, but you know that, your body knows that. And so we talk about, you know, these the polyvagal theory, right? And so we, we talk about this idea that our, our, the body keeps score, Bessel van der Kolk and, and, and others, right? So our body knows these memories and these psychedelic, these psychedelic experiences open our body up to experience these emotions again and to process them. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people are nervous about, I don't want a bad trip. And, and I think we need to change our language around psychedelics. Is that um, and and to, there's not a bad trip. There's challenging experiences, but these challenging experiences often become the the biggest catalyst for growth for individuals. So it could be challenging, but that might just mean processes coming up, things are coming up that need to be felt. For the first time in your life, maybe, maybe you need to cry for the first time. You know, I had a, one guy said, Peg, my mom died 10 years ago and I haven't shed a tear and it's okay. You know, I, I worked on that for 10 years and I said, well, how's that working for you? Marriage is disarray. I have no connection with my kids. And I think I, I said, I think there's a connection between your inability to feel that loss and your inability to connect with all the people in your life. And then he has this big experience in a group and does psychedelics. And he's like, I wept for four hours on my trip peg about my mother. And I didn't realize that that was so deeply in my body. And I feel like a new person. I feel like I can access my emotions for the first time in my life. 54 years old has been locked away for like you know 10 years, right? So I I really like the way you're talking about uh, psychedelics as an opportunity to feel through and not get stuck in these kind of, these things inside of our, our body. What gets you excited about the future? Where are you headed and what kind of, you know, as, as we watch and track you, where are you heading and what, what, what's getting you excited?
1: I mean, there's so much happening. I think, um, you know, the things that are key are learning more about music, how we can use music in this therapy that really interests me. Um, definitely the use of technology. You know, the reality is one of the ways in which we're going to be able to make this more accessible is by integrating technological tools to this therapy, whether it's to uh, prepare people for the experience, whether it's to help integrate the experience, whether it's to create an altered state. But, you know, for example, on the palliative care ward in our hospital, we have access to virtual reality. And so... Uh, a patient who is bedridden at the end of their life can go and visit a place, let's say some holy site, and have this profound experience uh, days before they die, and that's just an example of how technology uh, can really transform uh, lives. And so, technology is really important for me. Uh, this this connection to the indigenous is really important. You know, I think that um, th- the conditions that currently exist. the indigenous communities in Canada are not acceptable. Mm. And the amount of suffering is just unfair. And so I think we really need to address this suffering. Um, And uh, for me personally, you know, I I actually came to Canada as an international student to study medicine at McGill. And I love it so much that I've pretty much stayed here. Um, But as we expand our family, uh, my family lives in the US and, and California. And so you know i'm definitely going to be active um in in that area as well so we'll, we'll see how things evolve but uh, there's so much to be excited for and um you know i really appreciate people like you as well that are uh, helping uh, educate people about hmm. psychedelics and, and their potential
0: well yeah thank you thank you so much for uh, for our conversation and i i i do uh, i really like your you know the this this ancient idea of indigenous connection in uh, a kind of circles, ancient medicine, right? That's all ancient. We didn't, that's not new to us. But I think what's new is pairing that with this new technology, right? Of like things like Zoom. Like Zoom didn't really exist prior to, you know, it existed, but it wasn't used mainstream prior to COVID. And I remember when we were first uh, launching kind of our group work, we thought, can we regulate people online? Like, can we actually, and what I mean regulate is, can their nervous systems regulate on this kind of technology like Zoom? And most of the researchers says, no, it's impossible. You need to be, you know, we have to be in a room in a circle for people to really feel seen and heard. And after our first group, uh, we ran a group on Zoom and then they met for the first time after 10 weeks. We prepare people for 10 weeks before an altered state experience. They meet each other for the first time, right? Live and they're hugging and like, wow, you have a body and you're real and you're not just this, but everyone's connected. Everyone. So it works. We're realizing that these tools are going to be incredibly helpful at at reaching anyone who has access to a smartphone now, can access these kinds of connections and, and then fly to a site. Uh, you know, where it's legal, like Canada, other places eventually, uh, and have this experience and then go back online and connect and, and feel connected and part of a community. So I really love this idea of kind of an ancient way of being with modern technology and uniting that with our understanding of music, understanding of medicine now. so there's we're at a really exciting place uh, to be uh, in and uh, I think we're we're only just at the early early stages of what this is going to look like. Uh, and it's it takes people like you that are going to push the boundaries and, and challenge you know our, our models and to say you know what particularly our physicians uh, and I my 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 brother's a physician so I have a real soft heart for you know physicians will go into this because they really want to help people and yet it's a really rigid system that that really punishes innovators right so these colleges of phys- physicians and surgeons are are really strict conservative bodies that don't want any innovators right? So they're reactive. They're not proactive. So a person like you is saying, we need to evolve. We need to be open. And I just want to celebrate the work that you're doing and what you're doing in, in, in both these uh, with palliative patients uh, and, uh, and others. Uh, I think we're only just scraping the tip of the iceberg on what the possibilities of these substances are. And I am really thankful for coming on our podcast today to kind of tell us your story and what you're doing. Uh, Any other closing thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Thanks, Nopag. I I really appreciate all that you're doing and uh, look forward to creating content together.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, I think uh, you and I, we're going to have some fun together in the next year. I'm sensing that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for being on Unveiled Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Human Farzine about psychedelics and spirituality and how do we bring these medicines into our space in a safe way. Uh, if, uh, if you can go to his website, or we'll put it on, I'll uh, we'll put it on the link here and check out what he's doing and follow along, but hopefully we will have him back on our podcast. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Have a great day.
1: Thanks, Peg. Take care.
0: You betcha.